Someone has made the observation of this particular Sunday that any preacher who looks out across an Easter congregation and does not believe in the resurrection must be nearsighted. Actually, rather than being nearsighted, I suspect many of us struggle more with spiritual farsightedness. That is, we are attempting to understand, to see what happens on the far side, on the other side of our earthly life. So what about all this resurrection stuff, really? If you are sharing in this Easter service for more than merely a family obligation, then you either believe in the resurrection but entertain the possibility that there is nothing more after this life, or you believe that there is nothing more after this life but are here this morning because you are at least entertaining the possibility that there might be something more. The writer of Job pointed to this dilemma. And we are all somewhere along that spectrum of total disbelief and total trust. It's just a matter of to what degree. For those of us who have ever lost a loved one or a close friend, we know only all too well what the predominant worldly wisdom offers us on this subject. Namely, that a person is born, lives out the length of their days, be they short or long, dies, and are no more. To to view life only in terms of what is, in scientific, calculated, and controlled terms, is to accept such worldly wisdom. And we've been there at some point in our lives, to some degree or another, surely doubt and disbelief have been at least a small part of our journey. Nobel laureate in literature, Saul Bellow, writes in Humboldt's Gift this thought. Suppose then that after the greatest, most passionate vividness and tender glory, oblivion is all that we have to expect. The big Blank of death. What options present themselves? One option is to gradually train yourself into oblivion so that no great change has taken place when you die. Another option is to increase the bitterness of life so that death is a desirable release. In This, much of humanity might collaborate. He concludes, There is one further option seldom chosen. That option is to let the deepest elements in you disclose their deepest information. Let the deepest elements in you disclose their deepest information this day. The intimation is to let the deeps of who you are and the deeps of the Easter proclamation 
resonate with one another. So let's explore the Easter exclamation through the lens of two disciples walking to the village of Emmaus just outside Jerusalem. The only thing we know about them is that they were not part of the original 12 disciples. And yet, at some level, they were attracted to Jesus. And we know that one of them was named Cleopas. They, like us, were drawn to Jesus, his teachings, his influence, and faithfulness. But we will never know exactly how close they were. A good friend of mine has described them this way. They were fringe folks, Easter drop-ins, not taking the course for credit, but simply auditing the events. Perhaps every Easter congregation has a few religious auditors. Those who are intrigued by the subject, but don't want to commit themselves to taking a stand and doing the coursework. Well, in verse 15 we read, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And then Luke gives us a glimpse of what was keeping them from really seeing him. For they just stood there looking sad. They just stood there looking sad. You see, theirs was a hope problem. These two travelers had already set their agenda for the journey, and that was a revisiting of the events of sadness and crucifixion. For when the stranger inquired as to what they were discussing, they said, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it is now the third day since all this has happened. Elton Trueblood once wrote, If death ends all, we are forced to concede that for many, life is an unmitigated tragedy and thus constitutes a concrete, a concrete denial of God's individual care. Our two Easter auditors in Luke's text were contained by their own preconceived agendas. And so they acted out the only appropriate emotions that they knew, sadness and despair. Theirs was a hope problem. But theirs was also a heart problem that first Easter morn. They had heard the story of the women who had found the tomb empty. They had heard about the amazing vision of angels who said that he had come back to life. And they knew that others had gone to the burial place and found no body. And yet, they were still sad and discouraged. Isn't it incredible? They knew the story, but it wasn't enough. So the stranger on the road says, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, in addition to having a hope problem, they also had a heart problem. Oh, foolish ones, he said, slow of heart to believe. In Broken Wings, the Lebanese poet Cahil Gibran wrote, Despair weakens our sight and closes our eyes. We can see nothing but the specters of doom and can hear only the beating of our agitated hearts. Broken hearts and dashed hopes were what kept these two travelers from recognizing the stranger. The temptation is always there for us to preset our own agendas for receiving life, and thus we miss the surprises and unexpected insights and recognitions. And could it be that in an age when so many are spending their entire life to control life, that slowness of heart, slowness of heart toward that which cannot be controlled is the basic coronary disease of spiritual life. But when the heart is open to that which it cannot control and design, then even in times of sadness and despair, we can say with Henry Ward Beecher, tears, tears are often the telescope through which we see far into heaven. On that first Easter day, not unlike this day of decision, a couple of journeyers, perhaps like you and me, are unable to see because they have a hope problem and because they are unable unable to see because they have a heart problem. And then Luke tells us in verses 28 and 29, that the day was waning on, as all days do, and reaching their destination, the stranger appeared to be going on his way as if to say farewell. But the two journeyers compel him to stay. Abide with us. Fast falls the eventide, says the King James Version. And then in one of the most moving sentences in the entire Gospel, we read, He went in to stay to remain with them. Wow! But the question is where? Obviously, He went in to stay with them for a few brief moments in the house where they were. But He also remained in their hearts for an entire lifetime. An entire lifetime. For you recall what happened next. We remember it often when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When He was at table with them, He took the bread, He he gave thanks, He blessed it, He broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. They recognized Him in the breaking of the bread. Oh, how they would have loved to bask in His physical presence. 
But in a brief moment, he vanishes from their sight. And yet, that fleeting moment was enough. It was enough for them. It was enough for a lifetime of transformed living. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And then the two raced off that very very hour to tell the other disciples what they had seen and experienced. Snoopy is dancing, and Lucy exclaims, Crazy dog! Anyone who would dance around like like that in these troubled times is too stupid to know the difference. And then Snoopy kisses her with a big smack and says, you're right. That's why I call this my I'm too stupid to know the difference dance. (laughs) This morning, this morning the message of Easter is really this, that all hope problems and that all heart problems only find their final resolution in a simple awakening, a simple resurrection. It can happen anywhere. It can happen on whatever road of life we are traveling. And if it can happen on the road to Emmaus, it can happen on PCH, PV Drive, or Paseo del Mar. Jesus is the Lord of life. And we are called to journey on that road of faith with him, following Christ. That, dear friends, is a source of deep, true joy. Not because we control it, but because we receive it as an accompanying presence. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, wrote Paul in the book of Romans. The theme for today's sermon comes from the pen of the English poet William Blake. The one who binds to the self a joy does the winged life destroy, but the one who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. To kiss the joy and live in eternity's sunrise That's what Easter is all about. And then, to let that unimaginable gift of joy pervade the forgotten corners of our beings, such that all our decisions are touched not by the kiss of death, but by the kiss of Easter. By the kiss of eternity's sunrise. There is another option, wrote Saul Bellow. A further one yet, that option is to let the deepest elements in you disclose their deepest information. Let the deepest elements in you that you can't even fully articulate, let them inform you of what life is all about. Living with true, deep joy is one of the surest signs of the life of God within you that I know. 
And so in moving toward the end of this sermon and the beginning of all Easter life, I share with you a poem entitled Butterflied by You by Benedict Auer. I reach out for you and you slip through my fingers a caterpillar who has butterflied elusively out of my grasp yet flitters close enough to tempt my trying to catch you in my net. I run, regardless of dignity, after you, accepting just your presence as a sign of resurrection and rebirth from my own cocoon as you miracle me with your healing touch. I can't hold you too tight, for your wings would be crushed, and then you wouldn't be you, and what I love would be destroyed by my selfishness. And so I allow you freely to fly as you will. I hurt, but I can't tell you, for you cannot be forced to alight upon me, but rather you must be allowed to skim the surface of my day, touching me only when you want to home base with your passing presence. And so I go through my day, alert for you, wishing for a smile, or even a word, but settling for a distance, a distant glance or maybe a, a brush against my being. And then once in a while, you settle upon me and enfold me with your wings. And then I, too, am butterflied. And then, as if in floating amplification, the Easter exclamation. The one who binds to the self a joy does the winged life destroy. But the one who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Easter come and Easter go. We have come and we will go. We have come with the presence of Christ May we go on the way with the deep, true joy of Christ. Living, living in eternity's sunrise. Amen.